Today, this uh, is uh, week six of seven weeks through the Bible series that we're doing, a teaching that, uh, as we've said before, uh, pastor and author James Emery White did in his U.S. church and then made available to others. Um, and so we acknowledge that and thank him publicly for, for that. Um, we've looked at the supernatural origin of this book of 66 books, where we've seen the truth about God's redemption of humanity from beginning to end. We've looked at the Old Testament, which basically is, for those that may be new to this, um, is basically the part of the Bible that is before Jesus. And then last Sunday, we began the journey through the New Testament, as, as Pastor Jaden did a great job walking us through the four Gospels, which are the historically, uh, historical and reliable uh, accounts of Jesus' life. Well, today we're going to cover uh, the New Testament letters. And if you know anything about the New Testament, that's quite a chunk of writing, isn't it? Uh, we've said that this series is a bit classroomish. Um, that's just kind of the point. So consider class in session. Starting with the simple question, what's a letter? Well, the majority of the New Testament books are what are called epistles. Epistles. The word comes from the Greek word that means letter or message. They were originally written uh, as letters to uh, churches or individuals by spiritual leaders that God had appointed. They're the New Testament books from Romans through to Jude, uh, the second last book of the Bible. Now, today we're including the book of Acts in this uh, message. Uh, it's a history record, really, of, of the early church, but it, you know, it's also a letter uh, to a guy named Theophilus. Um, so anyway, the authors of the epistles are called, that was my junior high voice, did you hear that? That was, uh, the, the, um, always comes back once in a while, I do not understand that. Anyway. Focus, class. The authors of the epistles are called apostles, which means sent ones, simply, as they were sent out to preach the good news of Jesus, sent by Jesus, given authority by Jesus himself. They carried the authority of Jesus wherever they went in his name. Uh, and, and this resulted in their letters that they wrote later being viewed as the very word of God, word from God, and and thus these letters circulated, uh, um, and and were and and later uh, formulated what we refer to as the as the canon of Scripture. Those books that were recognizably uh, supernatural and contributing to the spiritual life and vibrancy of the church. Acts 2.42, we're reminded that the early church, and, and when I say church, I'm not meaning denomination or building. I'm meaning people. That's the New Testament definition. People who followed Jesus and were disciples of his. Uh, not the 12, uh, but, but beyond that, the disciple means learner. Those that wanted to live for Jesus and learn from Jesus and live for Jesus and like Jesus. So all that it's the definition of church, is people. In Acts 2.42, it says that the early church devoted themselves to the, what? One of four things in that verse. One of them was apostles' teaching, which was a lot of written material uh, later on. So, here we go, book by book, letters of the New Testament, and I got to talk fast. We're going to enjoy and celebrate communion together at the end today as well, just so you know. Acts. Starting with Acts. Again, historical record of the early church. It's called Acts because it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit carried out through the apostles and through the early church as they shared 
Jesus' good news message with the world. The author of this series, Emery White, puts it this way. He says, the book of Acts bristles with spiritual energy. I like that, and that's so true. Luke, the gospel writer, is a physician and a historian of the first rank. Has a reputation of just precision as a historian. Well, Luke also wrote this book of Acts, and it's actually really a sequel to his gospel of Luke as he as he carries the story forward to the post-resurrection days of Jesus on earth. Now, over in John 16, 7, Jesus said something to his disciples that was probably a little unsettling and troubling to them. He said this, It's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't leave, the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. They probably went, huh, what? You're leaving us? What's going on? Well, a significant statement. Why, why, in a nutshell, was that significant? Jesus knew that when he returned to heaven, again, he would send the Holy Spirit to reside within every single believer in Jesus. So, this is the key, so that the work that Jesus began while he was on earth could continue everywhere around the world, all at the same time, empowered by God through the Holy Spirit in the life of the believers. Ah, Greater, in that sense, than when Jesus was on earth as one man in one place, right? It's to your advantage. It's to the gospel's advantage. And then in Acts 1.8, we see Jesus promised, what did he promise there? Power to his followers. So his followers could, could do this effectively. Can't do it on our own. I can't, we can't. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective witnesses. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit for that purpose. Interestingly, the Greek word, original language translated that we get power, is the word uh, uh, dunamis, from which we get the English word uh, dynamite. Power from God. Not to blow up things, but, but, to, but to have courage and boldness and, and power in our speaking and in our praying and in our evangelism and wisdom as well. To Acts 2, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit as well as the supernatural languages or tongues which are a gift from God available to every believer, I believe. For, for, for use in, in personal prayer, in worship, in evangelism, um, praying in a divinely inspired unknown tongue is spiritually strengthening, the Bible talks about. When, when people say that tongues are a gift only for some, that's true. If we're talking about the corporate use of the gift of tongues with interpretation as talked about in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. But praying in tongues in our private prayer time uh, is, is a gift that every believer can receive. And we seek the giver even more than the gift. Fall in love with you. I, I, I just encourage you to read the book of Acts prayerfully with an open heart and look for times when the Holy Spirit came and filled believers. Posture your heart to receive from Jesus the baptizer as you read. Next, Romans, one of the most important writings of the faith. First half of Romans is a theologically intellectual workout. <laughs> and the last half, Paul puts on his pastor hat and applies it to our lives. And then in the middle, in chapters 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul bridges the two halves with some very personal and honest words from his spiritual journey. Listen, Romans 7, he writes this, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Have you ever felt that way? 
For I, he says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man that I, well, strong language. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, he says. And then he just finishes it with a punch and with great truth and encouraging statement. Thanks be to God who delivers me from, or who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can probably all relate to those same words, those words of Paul. But thankfully, there's freedom. There's freedom from sin through the power of Jesus Christ as we surrender to him. Just rich, rich, deep teaching in, in Romans. On to First and Second Corinthians. Same writer, Paul. Two letters to the Christians in Corinth, which was a thriving city commercially and politically. Uh, but, but the body of Christ was a mess here. They, they had divisions in the church. Someone was having a, an affair with their stepmother. Uh, they, they were taking one another to court. Uh, some were engaging with uh, pagan temple prostitutes. Uh, others had gone the other extreme and, and, and were withholding sex from their spouse. And Paul speaks to that uh, and against that directly in, in uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, they were using spiritual gifts with the wrong motives. In other words, to be in the spotlight. Uh, just, just a mess. Corinth First Assembly had problems. And so Paul wrote those uh, two letters to bring correction, uh, praying that God would, uh, through his writings, would, would remedy the spiritual dysfunction, actually, in, in that church. Galatians, next letter. Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, written to address problem people, namely a group known as the Judaizers. That word comes from the Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. So they were Christians of Jewish background who believed it was necessary to hold on to the Old Testament Jewish customs and practices in order to be a Christian. Despite the fact that Paul uh, clearly and often in Galatians and throughout the New Testament, other places, spoke clearly that, that Christ had fulfilled everything that the law required and that that was no longer necessary. That's just so clear in the New Testament. But these Judaizers were, they were essentially creating a legalistic type of Christianity, a works-oriented salvation, which flew in the face of the grace of Jesus. And what he did on the cross. Jesus' gift, key word, of salvation was not intended by God to be, you know, kind of slapped on top of the law. Rather, Jesus fulfilled the law and offers grace instead. And I, I, I'm so grateful for that, as I know many of you are. And Paul summed it up in Galatians 5, where he said to, to the Christians there, he says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Next, Ephesians. Whose letter? Oh, Paul's. Yeah, his letter to the church in Ephesus, an important uh, harbor city in Western Asia Minor, now Turkey, uh, where Paul spent at least three years. Uh, this, letter, uh, this letter is a bit unique because it doesn't seem to address a specific problem. It's more of a discipleship letter, one intended to help kind of expand their uh, spiritual and theological horizons. It, it helps all of us have a deeper view of, of this. I mean, read that first chapter. It's a Long sentences, but powerful stuff. Just the blessings that come through Jesus Christ and his cross. And Paul wrote about it. Uh, it it's an awesome letter that, that really can give us uh, spiritual nourishment and, and, and lift uh, for a lifetime. Very cool letter. 
I think we're doing probably a nine-week series in the new year later in February, March on that. And I think because I spent some time praying about that, but I'm excited about that possibility uh, through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Then there's Philippians. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Philippi around 61 AD while he was in prison in Rome. Uh, And yet it's it's interesting. He, He writes this letter about living free, but he's in prison. I love it. It's a beautiful uh, irony, a a powerful spiritual reality that he was living while he was physically imprisoned. The story of the birth of of this uh, Philippian church is told in Acts 16. You should read it. Paul and his missionary companions uh, go to Philippi to share Jesus. Uh, Some people there in, in the city of Philippi were involved in the occult. Some uh, were possessed by demons. And some of those individuals would go around telling people's future, supposedly. And don't, don't be fooled by the Long Island medium. As a matter of fact, don't even watch it. The Bible speaks about that. It really does, and it's a dangerous thing. But these demon-possessed people in Philippi made a lot of money off their, uh, you know, or, or they made a lot of money for their occultic pimps, really, is what they were. And so Paul and company arrive in town, and a lady possessed by a demon starts following them around. And she's chirping, chirping, chirping. Read the story in Acts 16 again. Paul recognizes the demonic source of the distraction, finally turns to her, and I think, if I recall correctly, it's some days later. So, Paul's very patient, I don't know. But anyway, at some point, he turns and casts the demon out of her. She's immediately freed from the control of this demonic entity, and the irritation and the distraction stops. God's power over anything satanic. So we don't have to fear that stuff, right? If we're in Christ... Um, however, the man, uh, the lady's free, but, but, but the man who was profiting from this previously demonized woman was not happy. His income was gone now. So he and others uh, dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities, uh, charging them with ruining their livelihood. Paul, the Bible says, in, again, Acts 16, Paul and Silas are, are, are beaten, stripped, uh, and, and thrown in prison. Uh, but around midnight, huh, something happened. They, Paul and Silas, probably still nursing the, the, the pain from being beaten. They're, they're praying. They're, they're praising God in jail. Suddenly an earthquake hits. Obviously a God thing. The prison doors fly open. Their chains fall off. The jailer's freaking out because he's fearful. He, he's so afraid he starts to, uh, to, to position his sword to fall on his sword because he knows that what he's going to face is much worse if these uh, prisoners that he's been uh, ch- you know, charged to watch over, if, if they escape, And Paul yells out, don't do that. We're here. We're not running away. You've just witnessed an act of God. The the jailer ends up wanting to hear about this Jesus that they've been singing about. Anyway, he and his family end up trusting in Christ. And they're baptized. And they become a part of this new church in Philippi. What a great church planting story to God's glory. Paul doesn't specifically describe... Sorry, uh, Colossians, let's go there for time's sake. Uh, uh, Colossians is written by, thank you, you guessed it, uh, around 60 AD, written to help uh, a new Coloss- uh, the church in Colossae, uh, a new and vulnerable church that, that got infected by uh, false teaching. And he doesn't outline what it is exactly, but the heresy uh, we see um, that there's evidence of uh, legalism, Worship of angels, uh, which is, they're created beings. Don't worship. Uh, um, 
and, 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 a, and a diminishing view of, of Jesus. There's a lesson for, for me in this book and throughout the New Testament in various places. There's a lesson for pastors that's important. And I've lived it at times. It's this. That it's not only okay to call out false prophecy or false teaching, rather, or both, but it's not only okay to call out false teaching, it's vital that a pastor be willing to do so for the spiritual well-being and biblical integrity of the body. Again, I've done it. It's not always easy to do. It doesn't always feel nice, but it's the loving thing to do. Oh, your people can question your motives as a leader but it's the loving thing to do. Now, obviously, doing so needs to be done with a heart of love and humility, but it's the loving thing to do. And this reminder is one of the reasons we, I believe we have this letter today. First and Second Thessalonians, moving on. Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica, the largest, busiest city in Macedonia. In Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas go to the Jewish synagogue in that city. And the Bible says in Acts 17, three Sabbaths in a row, they went there to make the case with the Jews that Jesus was actually the Messiah, the, the, the one that they had been waiting for for so long. Well, hmm, verse 4 of Acts 17 says, Ah, some Jews were persuaded. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you come to understand all of the prophecies, the, some of the specific detail that was prophesied in the Old Testament and, 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 and uh, became a reality in the New Testament, it's just, there's so many. It's unbelievable. It's quite a study. Uh, but I'm sure they were talking about some of this stuff with the Jews. And, and the Bible says in Acts 17.4, some of the Jews were persuaded. But some got ticked off. This Jesus... From Nazareth, the carpenter, whatever, right? They, they, they just, they got worked up and started shouting this. These men have caused trouble all around the world and now they're disturbing our city too. And so they apparently left because the Bible says there was some, um, kind of, there was a mob mentality that, that was stirred up and they, they began to search all over the place for, for Paul and Silas. Verse 10 says that, that night, the believers in Thessalonica sent Paul and Silas. They said, you, you, you better get out of here. Go to Berea. You'll be safe there. They were, they were concerned for their safety. And so Paul and Silas arrive in Berea and probably other traveling companions there too. And, and they went, where did, what did they do? They throttled back on their mission? Not a chance. Where did they head to right away? The synagogue. Same thing. Because they knew this message of Jesus had to be heard. You don't have to wait anymore. The Messiah has come was their message. And so in Berea, they found more openness to their message as we read about it again in Acts 17. So sometime after Paul had been in Thessalonica, he sent Timothy, a young leader who he had been mentoring. Uh, he, he sent him back there. Great mentor, hey? I got in trouble there. You go this time. <laughs> and so Timothy goes, and uh, he, he, he brings back a report. Good news, bad news report. Good news was the church was standing strong. Bad news was that there were, they were experiencing some, some doctrinal divisions and, and, and some temptations from the surrounding culture. And so that's when Paul wrote the uh, first letter of uh, Thessalonians, uh, followed shortly by his second letter to that church after hearing back from them. He wrote that second one. But imagine, you know, think about it. You're a brand new Christian in this city. Brand, everything's new. The church is new. You and your friends, it's a new thing about faith in Jesus and following him. And then the person who led you to Christ is suddenly gone and you begin to face persecution. 
No leadership, no teaching. But soon two letters arrive from your spiritual leader who had been sent away so quickly. And those letters become, uh, become spiritually life-sustaining for you and for the rest of the folks in that church family in Thessalonica. I mean, that's what happened. That's what happened. And, and these letters are, are still words from God for us today. First and Second Timothy. Paul's letters to this same guy, Timothy, uh, just pure mentorship here in these two letters. Okay, scenario one. Imagine that you're a young, aspiring hockey player in the NHL. And you overhear, let's say, Wayne Gretzky. Yes, I'm dating myself. Giving advice to a young rookie, uh, uh, giving advice to a skilled rookie with much promise, uh, whom, for whatever reason, Gretzky has taken under his wing, and Gretz pulls him aside and says, you know, here's what you need to know, not only about hockey, but about life, and about how to be successful and work, all these things, to be even better than I am. If you were a young player in that locker room, I, I think you'd most likely try to eavesdrop on some of those conversations. Is the picture up there? Yes, it is. I, I was going to show all of the Stanley Cup banners, but didn't want Pastor Joel to feel left out this morning, so just this is... That was pretty good. Another scenario. Just go with me on this, okay? Because I know there's so many water skiers in the room. Maybe. You're at Shalom Park Water Ski Park, a world-class facility 30 minutes from here. Um... And you're, you're, you're there, you're ready to ski the course, you're sitting on the edge of the dock, about to yell to the boat driver, hit it, and suddenly world champion slalom skier Nate Smith walks onto the dock. <laughs> and, and, I mean, this guy, he, he, holds, world, uh, he holds world championship records, he, he currently holds the men's slalom record of, of skiing the course three boys at, on a 9.75 meter line, which, folks, you got, that's crazy. That's crazy stuff. And, and so he shows up, and you're sitting there, you're ready to ski, and, and, and he shows up, and the, the, the boat driver is, well, what's the delay? Because you're not yelling, hit it. You want to hang around. Because you, as soon as he shows up, he's talking to this teenager on the dock about, you know, the things he does to keep his body position and get around the buoy and get, hold the edge through the wake and how he does that. It's like, I'm not saying hit it. I'm eavesdropping. Oh, I got a problem with my boot. I got to readjust here while I listen to what's being said. Eavesdropping. Okay. Silly scenarios, maybe, but I want you to think. Scenario number three, you're a Christ follower. And you have a chance to read a letter, letters, two of them that were written by none other than the greatest missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul, to someone he chose to mentor in Christian life and pastoral leadership. I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to read that. Reading, and reading what Paul had to say to, to young Timothy in these two letters is even more, far more, I just want to go on record as saying, far more important than catching whatever Gretzky or Nate Smith would say. Ah, read the letters. Then there's a brief letter of Titus. Along with First and Second Timothy, Titus is called a pastoral letter because it was written to pastors that, in this case, that Titus was commissioned by Paul to appoint in different places. 
appoint elders. And the word there is, is, is for the individual in that pastoral role in those places. And Titus had become a Christian through Paul, and he had been a huge help uh, to Paul in some of his missionary travels. And there was a neat relationship there, I'm sure. Uh, we need to move on quickly. Philemon. The letter of Philemon. A uh, very brief letter. Paul writes this personal letter to Philemon who, who had a slave named Onesimus who had stolen money and ran away. And so we've got some delicate subject matter here. Uh, Christ's radical new message of equality, and you can read about that in Galatians, uh, in Galatians chapter 3 uh, as well, but Christ's radical new message of equality, just it, it clashed with uh, slavery as it was practiced in, in the Roman Empire. Now, the Bible does not condone slavery, even though it's mentioned. It's referred to. It was a reality. It was there. Um, everything that was there doesn't mean God agreed with it. Same with polygamy. God never, God never approved of that. Many fail to understand that slavery in the New Testament was quite different from slavery that comes to our mind when we hear that word today. People were not enslaved because of their nationality or their color of their skin or those, those types of things. GotQuestions.org is a site I refer to once in a while. I was just sharing it with our small group this past week. It has a helpful comment here. It, it says this. Something to keep in mind is that the New Testament often approaches issues from the inside out. In other words, if a person experiences the grace of God by receiving his salvation, God will change the way he thinks and acts. A person who has experienced God's gift of freedom from slavery to sin will realize that enslaving another human being is wrong. In other words, or, or sorry, the Bible, that's the Bible's prescription for ending things like slavery. So, in other words, trying, trying to reform societal issues apart from inner spiritual change is pretty much fruitless. Paul knew there were Christian slaves and masters. And so he addressed the issue, and he wrote about it often, in terms of how both lived in that relationship, employer, employee, if it was probably just pretty accurate as well of the, describing the relationship. But he, he, uh, he wrote about and encouraged Christ-like interaction in, in, in that relationship. Philemon became a Christian through uh, Paul's ministry, and now Onesimus, his runaway slave, meets Paul in Rome and becomes a Christ follower as well. And so the two of them, they together agree that the best thing to do is for Onesimus to return, and he does with this personal letter in hand uh, to be delivered to Philemon. And if you ever wonder, still, if you ever wonder where the early church stood on slavery, here's Paul's words from this letter of Philemon. And really, they're a cultural bombshell for that day. I am sending, Philemon verse 12 and 16, in that one chapter letter. I'm sending Onesimus back to you, no longer as a slave, but better, as a dear brother. Welcome him as you would welcome me, he tells his friend Philemon. Very interesting. On to Hebrews. It's most likely written by Paul, but there's some uncertainty uh, about that. Uh, in this letter, there's a lot about how Christ is the fulfillment, again, of the Old Testament. Uh, the recipients of, these, of, of this letter were Hebrews, Jewish people, Hebrews, uh, also a great name for a cafe, Hebrews. Um, 
You'll see the sign next week. You bet. You'll see the sign on top of the window there. So the Jewish people, written to Jewish people who came to trust Christ by being tempted, um, but, but, but were, sorry, but were being tempted to revert back to Judaism or, or at least to uh, Judaize, if that's the word, uh, the gospel. Hebrews clearly establishes that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross completely erased the need for Jewish rituals. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. The letter of James, a letter of so much practical wisdom for Christian living, written by the brother of Jesus, um, a a different James than the two named among Jesus' disciples, by the way. Um, So, yeah, uh, brother of Jesus, half-brother. So, in other words, uh, after Jesus, you probably figured this out, but after Jesus uh, was was born and and miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of virgin, uh, after that time, Mary and Joseph had other children after they were married, and and James was... uh, was one of them. It, it appears that James didn't become a believer uh, until after the resurrection. And uh, in, just a fascinating story. You'll think about it, what it would be like to be a sibling of Jesus. Wow. Anyway, uh, some of the scripture references on the screen there, you can, uh, you can reference and, and, and uh, get a little bit more of that uh, story. Uh, this letter is probably the oldest in the New Testament, written uh, around 45 A.D., Uh, James is uh, really straightforward in his writing, very clear. It's a very good book to how do I grow in in becoming more like Jesus. Uh, James, great, great book to read. Uh, According to Jewish historian Josephus, uh, James was martyred uh, for Christ um, around 62 A.D. Uh, Moving on, 1 and 2 Peter written by the Apostle Peter, and addressed to multiple churches. These two short letters deal, uh, oh, with various topics, but if there's a, a dominant uh, idea in each letter, uh, in, in 1 Peter, it would be handling persecution. Um, the, the, uh, the time of the writing, uh, 60 to, between 60 and 65 AD, uh, believers had been intensely persecuted. There was a, it's called this, this, uh, dispersion. They were dispersed throughout the ancient world because of intense persecution, trying to find places all over where they could live and follow Christ without harassment or, or risk of death, really. Um, so 1 Peter was written to the, to the, the Christians that, I'm not sure how they, you know, passed around this letter or copied it or whatever, but uh, it made its way around and encouraged people who were suffering that kind of persecution. And by the way, that happens today in our world. We, we all know that in, in more ways and, and more often than we, than we realize uh, in many countries of our, of our world. We need to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters. They suffer for Jesus. How, how would Marlo live? I'm just, I'm just impacted by that right now. How would Marlo live in a culture where your family was at risk because of your faith in Jesus? Ah, oh, the questions that come with that, right? Anyway, didn't expect that sidebar, but there it was. In Second Peter, it's uh, this um, dominant idea is, is how to deal again with false teachers. Again, false teachers. Peter was martyred in Rome during the reign of Nero. 
somewhere close to 68 AD. First, second, third John, moving on quickly. Three letters written between 85 and 95 AD by the Apostle John, who wrote, same author as the Gospel of John, and who wrote the book that we'll be looking at next Sunday, the book of Revelation. Uh, first and second John were written to tackle problems, and once again, false teaching. Uh, there's still false teaching today, folks. And, and, and it finds its way out through the internet, through books, through sometimes conferences, whatever. I mean, just, just be aware. That's not a... Ah, I was just going to say that's not a judgmental statement. Yeah, you can make a judgment without being judgmental. Do you understand? And actually, the Bible calls us to do that. So the, the Bible, the Word of God, know your Bible. It's the plumb line. And I want to go on record here. If I ever say anything that is just clearly against what Scripture says, do not listen to me. We need to know the Word of God. Like there was in New Testament times, there is. There is much false teaching. And we can't get enamored with it and all of that, but it's there, and sometimes we need to engage it with biblical truth. But that won't happen unless... We know the Word of God, and that's why I'm excited, in part, other reasons, but for this coming 12-month journey through the Word of God together. It's going to be good. Second um, John points out the importance of believing in the right Jesus. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he says. In other words, God come as a man to earth for our salvation. If you've been around Eaglemont Church for any length of time, you've probably heard me uh, earnestly speak about the importance of who Jesus is, uh, a, a vital truth that he is fully God, creator of everything we see, and God in flesh, 100% man, 100% God, 100% man. Can I rationalize, you know, wrap my finite mind around that truth? No, but that's okay. He's God, I'm not. Oh, I can work and dialogue and read and try to understand and comprehend. But of course. But it's important who Jesus is. He, Jesus is not a created being. Small G God, as the Jehovah Witnesses say. Their John 1.1 translation is wrong. Also, Jesus is not... Jesus is not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as the Mormons say, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He is not. He's God, creator God of the Bible, come to earth in human flesh as a man for our salvation to be God. Now, listen, this is so important. Listen carefully. If Jesus is not God, as the Father is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Trinity back, I think it was the first message in this series. You can listen if you missed that. I won't get into it right now. But if Jesus is not God, then he is not perfectly sinless, in which case he cannot be the perfect sacrifice for our sin that God the Father, the righteous and holy judge, requires. My dad, who knows the Bible as well as anybody I know, put it this way, and I've heard him say it over the years, if, if you're wrong about who Jesus is, you're wrong enough to lose your soul for eternity. That's big stuff. False teaching needs to be corrected in a loving way. Then, 
John, his third epistle, written first to commend his co-worker Gaius in his ministry of hospitality, secondly to reprimand and correct the behavior of a guy in one of the churches named Diotrephes. Third uh, John 9 and 10, John wrote that Diotrephes loves to be the leader. Oh, that sounds troublesome already. And he doesn't come under John's spiritual leadership. Interesting. In verse 11, John writes to his other friend in that church, obviously. He says, don't let this bad example influence you. The final letter, Jude. Written to a general audience by Jude, the brother of James, and also half-brother then of Jesus. There were some people who were, oh, here we go again. In this place, they were, they were distorting the message of grace. And this is how they did that. They said that being saved by grace gave them license to sin because their sins would be forgiven anyway. Ever heard that? That's, that's cycled around over the decades and more probably. That's a distortion of the grace message. Jude wrote to correct that. Tradition tells us that Jude and James as well died a martyr's death as, as a Christ follower, as Christ followers. So, there's the letters, the epistles. So much great stuff about how to live for Jesus, how to live in community with other believers, how to live in a broken world uh, to represent Jesus well. One leg of our journey left, and that's next Sunday, the fascinating and and sometimes difficult to understand book of uh, Revelation. But as we close this morning and move into a time of, uh, uh, of sharing communion together as Jesus calls his disciples, his followers to do, um, I want to give you an opportunity to make your decision to follow Jesus today if you haven't done that. You see, we, we don't work for that. We, we, can't, we can't earn it. It's a gift of His grace. And I'm going to pray in a moment and invite you, if this is your desire, I invite you to make this prayer your own, in your own words, as I pray. It's not about the words I say. God knows your heart, and yet we make confession verbally. In that moment, God will bring you into His eternal family. And so if your desire is to surrender to Jesus Christ who loves you so much, I want you to express this prayer as every head is bowed and every eye is closed right now. And you pray, if that's your desire, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus, to this earth to show how much you love me. I believe that Jesus is God come in human flesh to take the the penalty for sin that belonged to me, to take it upon himself on the cross. And, And Jesus, I believe that you rose from the dead to show your power over, over sin and death and to bring me into your eternal family. Make me, in this moment I pray, make me a child of God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for, for saving me from eternal separation from you. I receive you now. Help me to walk with you and grow in this new relationship with God, my creator, through Jesus. Thank you. Those who prayed that prayer this morning, 
as, uh, as heads are still bowed, if you prayed that prayer, I want you, I'd love to just celebrate with you. And so I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand and look my way, catch my eye, if that's a prayer you prayed today. I would love to know, not to call you out, but to, to go away, hopefully meet you and, and pray for you. Is there anybody that prayed that prayer this morning? Maybe you, you want to text to let us know. We just want to help. We want to walk along with, with you in this, in this relationship with Christ. And there's, a, there's a, a phone number, a cell number on the screen that you can text the word Jesus. And uh, that will give us opportunity to just encourage you and, and, uh, and help you in this new relationship. God bless you. Thank you for opening your heart to the word of God this morning.